Hello, and welcome to Bominable Bominations, a podcast where I'll serialize some of the classics of turn of the 20th century horror, and who knows what else the future may hold. I'm Tuomas, a voice actor and aficionado of the weird and terrifying, and I'm delighted to have you join me for this week's continuation of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. Four. The Earth. Thus I was, and only the memory that I had lived through the dark once before served to sustain my thoughts. A great time passed, ages, and then a single star broke its way through the darkness. It was the first of one of the outlying clusters of this universe. Presently, it was far behind, and all about me shone the splendor of the countless stars. Later, years it seemed, I saw the sun, a clot of flame. Around it, I made out presently several remote specks of light, the planets of the solar system. And so I saw the earth again, blue and unbelievably minute. It grew larger and became defined. A long space of time came and went. And then at last I entered into the shadow of the world, plunging headlong into the dim and holy earth night. Overhead were the old constellations, and there was a crescent moon. Then, as I neared the Earth's surface, a dimness swept over me, and I appeared to sink into a black mist. For a while, I knew nothing. I was unconscious. Gradually, I became aware of a faint, distant whining. It became plainer. A desperate feeling of agony possessed me. I struggled madly for breath and tried to shout. A moment, and I got my breath more easily. I was conscious that something was licking my hand. Something damp swept across my face. I heard a panting and then again the whining. It seemed to come to my ears now with a sense of familiarity, and I opened my eyes. All was dark but the feeling of oppression had left me. I was seated, and something was whining piteously and licking me. I felt strangely confused and, instinctively, tried to ward off the thing that licked. My head was curiously vacant, and, for the moment, I seemed incapable of action or thought. Then, things came back to me. And I called, Pepper, faintly. I was answered by a joyful bark and a few renewed and frantic caresses. In a little while, I felt stronger and put out my hand for the matches. I groped about for a few minutes, blindly. Then my hands lit upon them and I struck a light and looked confusedly around. All about me I saw the old, familiar things— And there I sat, full of dazed wonders, until the flame of the match burnt my finger and I dropped it, 
while a hasty expression of pain and anger escaped my lips, surprising me with the sound of my own voice. After a moment, I struck another match, and, stumbling across the room, lit the candles. As I did so, I observed that they had not burned away, but had been put out. As the flames shot up, I turned and stared about the study, yet there was nothing unusual to see, and suddenly a gust of irritation took me. What had happened? I held my head with both hands and tried to remember. Ah, the great silent plain and the ring-shaped sun of red fire. Where were they? Where had I seen them? How long ago? I felt dazed and muddled. Once or twice I walked up and down the room, unsteadily. My memory seemed dulled, and already the thing I had witnessed came back to me with an effort. I have a remembrance of cursing peevishly in my bewilderment. Suddenly I turned faint and giddy, and had to grasp at the table for support. During a few moments I held on, weakly, and then managed to totter sideways into a chair. After a little time, I felt somewhat better, and succeeded in reaching the cupboards where, usually, I keep brandy and biscuits. I poured myself out a little of the stimulant, and drank it off. Then, taking a handful of biscuits, I returned to my chair and began to devour them ravenously. I was vaguely surprised at my hunger— I felt as though I had eaten nothing for an uncountably long time. As I ate, my glance roved around the room, taking in its various details and still searching, though almost unconsciously, for something tangible on which to take hold among the invisible mysteries that encompassed me. Surely, I thought, there must be something— and, in the same instant, my gaze dwelt upon the face of the clock in the opposite corner. Therewith, I stopped eating, and just stared. For, though its ticking indicated most certainly that it was still going, the hands were pointing to a little before the hour of midnight, whereas it was, as I well knew, considerably after that time when I had witnessed the first of the strange happenings I have just described. For perhaps a moment I was astounded and puzzled. Had the hour been the same as when I had last seen the clock, I should have concluded that the hands had stuck in one place, while the internal mechanism went on as usual, but that would, in no way, account for the hands having travelled backward. Then, even as I turned the matter over in my wearied brain, the thought flashed upon me that it was now close upon the morning of the 22nd, and that I had been unconscious to the visible world through the greater portion of the last 24 hours. The thought occupied my attention for a full minute. Then I commenced to eat again. I was still very hungry. During breakfast next morning, I inquired casually of my sister regarding the date, and found my surmise correct. I had 
indeed, been absent, at least in spirit, for nearly a day and a night. My sister asked me no questions, for it is by no means the first time that I have kept to my study for a whole day, and sometimes a couple of days at a time, when I have been particularly engrossed in my books or work. And so the days pass on, and I am still filled with a wonder to know the meaning of all that I saw on that memorable night. Yet, well, I know that my curiosity is little likely to be satisfied. 5. The Thing in the Pit This house is, as I have said before, surrounded by a huge estate and wild and uncultivated gardens. Away at the back, distant some 300 yards, is a dark, deep ravine, spoken of as the Pit by the peasantry. At the bottom runs a sluggish stream, so overhung by trees as scarcely to be seen from above. In passing, I must explain that this river has a subterranean origin, emerging suddenly at the east end of the ravine and disappearing as abruptly beneath the cliffs that form its western extremity. It was some months after my vision, if vision it were, of the Great Plain, that my attention was particularly attracted to the pit. I happened one day to be walking along its southern edge, when suddenly several pieces of rock and shale were dislodged from the face of the cliff immediately beneath me, and fell with a sullen crash through the trees. I heard them splash in the river at the bottom and then silence. I should not have given this incident more than a passing thought had not Pepper at once begun to bark savagely, nor would he be silent when I bade him, which is most unusual behavior on his part. Feeling that there must be someone or something in the pit, I went back to the house quickly for a stick. When I returned, Pepper had ceased his barks and was growling and smelling uneasily along the top. Whistling to him to follow me, I started to descend cautiously. The depth to the bottom of the pit must be about 150 feet, and some time as well as considerable care was expended before we reached the bottom in safety. Once down, Pepper and I started to explore along the banks of the river. It was very dark there due to the overhanging trees, and I moved warily, keeping my glance about me and my stick ready. Pepper was quiet now, and kept close to me all the time. Thus, we searched right up one side of the river without hearing or seeing anything. Then we crossed over by the simple method of jumping, and commenced to beat our way back through the underbrush. We had accomplished perhaps half the distance, when I heard again the sound of falling stones on the other side, the side from which we had just come. One large rock came thundering down through the treetops, struck the opposite bank, and bounded into the river, driving a great jet of water right over us. At this, Pepper gave out a deep growl, then stopped and pricked up his ears. I listened also. 
A second later, a loud, half-human, half-pig-like squeal sounded from among the trees, apparently about halfway up the south cliff. It was answered by a similar note from the bottom of the pit. At this, Pepper gave a short, sharp bark and, springing across the little river, disappeared into the bushes. Immediately afterwards, I heard his barks increase in depth and number, and in between there sounded a noise of confused jabbering. This ceased, and, in the succeeding silence, there arose a semi-human yell of agony. Almost immediately, Pepper gave a long-drawn howl of pain, and then the shrubs were violently agitated, and he came running out with his tail down and glancing as he ran over his shoulder. As he reached me, I saw that he was bleeding from what appeared to be a great claw wound in the side that had almost laid bare his ribs. Seeing Pepper thus mutilated, a furious feeling of anger seized me, and, whirling my staff, I sprang across and into the bushes from which Pepper had emerged. As I forced my way through, I thought I heard a sound of breathing. Next instant, I had burst into a little clear space, just in time to see something. Livid white in color disappear among the bushes on the opposite side. With a shout, I ran towards it, but though I struck and probed among the bushes with my stick, I neither saw nor heard anything further, and so returned to Pepper. There, after bathing his wound in the river, I bound my wetted handkerchief round his body. Having done which, we retreated up the ravine and into the daylight again. On reaching the house, my sister inquired what had happened to Pepper, and I told her he had been fighting with a wildcat, of which I heard there were several about. I felt it would be better not to tell her how it had really happened, though, to be sure, I scarcely knew myself. But this I did know, that the thing I had seen run into the bushes was no wildcat. It was much too big, and had, so far as I had observed, a skin like a hog's, only of a dead, unhealthy white colour. And then it had run upright, or nearly so, upon its hind feet, with a motion somewhat resembling that of a human being. This much I had noticed in my brief glimpse, and, truth to tell, I felt a good deal of uneasiness, besides curiosity as I turned the matter over in my mind. It was in the morning that the above incident had occurred. Then, it would be after dinner, as I sat reading, that, happening to look up suddenly, I saw something peering in over the window ledge, the eyes and ears alone showing. A pig, by Jove, I said, and rose to my feet. Thus I saw the thing more completely. But it was no pig. God alone knows what it was. It reminded me, vaguely, of the hideous thing that had haunted the great arena. It had a grotesquely human mouth and jaw, but with no chin of which to speak. The nose was prolonged into a snout. Thus it was that with the little eyes and queer ears gave it such an extraordinarily swine-like appearance. Of forehead there was little, and the whole face was an unwholesome white color. 
For perhaps a minute, I stood looking at the thing with an ever-growing feeling of disgust and some fear. The mouth kept jabbering inanely and once emitted a half-swinish grunt. I think it was the eyes that attracted me the most. They seemed to glow at times with a horribly human intelligence and kept flickering away from my face over the details of the room as though my stare disturbed it. It appeared to be supporting itself by two claw-like hands upon the windowsill. These claws, unlike the face, were of a clay-brown hue and bore an indistinct resemblance to human hands, in that they had four fingers and a thumb, though these were webbed up to the first joint, much as are a duck's. Nails it had also, but so long and powerful that they were more like the talons of an eagle than aught else. As I have said before, I felt some fear, though almost of an impersonal kind. I may explain my feeling better by saying that it was more a sensation of abhorrence, such as one might expect to feel if brought in contact with something superhumanly foul, something unholy, belonging to some hitherto undreamt-of state of existence. I cannot say that I grasped these various details of the brute at the time. I think they seemed to come back to me afterward, as though imprinted upon my brain. I imagined more than I saw as I looked at the thing, and the material details grew upon me later. For perhaps a minute I stared at the creature. Then, as my nerves steadied a little, I shook off the vague alarm that had held me and took a step toward the window. Even as I did so, the thing ducked and vanished. I rushed to the door and looked round hurriedly, but only the tangled bushes and shrubs met my gaze. I ran back into the house and, getting my gun, sallied out to search through the gardens. As I went, I asked myself whether the thing I had just seen was likely to be the same of which I had caught a glimpse in the morning. I inclined to think it was. I would have taken Pepper with me, but judged it better to give his wound a chance to heal. Besides, if the creature I had seen was, as I imagined, his antagonist of the morning, it was not likely that he would be of much use. I began my search, systematically. I was determined, if it were possible, to find and put an end to that swine thing. This was, at least, a material horror. At first, I searched cautiously, with the thought of Pepper's wound in my mind. But, as the hours passed, and not a sign of anything living showed in the great, lonely gardens, I became less apprehensive. I felt almost as though I would welcome the sight of it. Anything seemed better than this silence, with the ever-present feeling that the creature might be lurking in every bush I passed. Later, I grew careless of danger, to the extent of plunging right through the bushes, probing with my gun barrel as I went. At times, I shouted, but only the echoes answered back. I thought thus, perhaps, to frighten or stir the creature to showing itself, 
but only succeeded in bringing my sister Mary out to know what was the matter. I told her that I had seen the wild cat that had wounded Pepper and that I was trying to hunt it out of the bushes. She seemed only half satisfied and went back into the house with an expression of doubt upon her face. I wondered whether she had seen or guessed anything. For the rest of the afternoon, I prosecuted the search anxiously. I felt that I should be unable to sleep with that bestial thing haunting the shrubberies, and yet, when evening fell, I had seen nothing. Then, as I turned homeward, I heard a short, unintelligible noise among the bushes to my right. Instantly, I turned and, aiming quickly, fired in the direction of the sound. Immediately afterward, I heard something scuttling away among the bushes. It moved rapidly and in a minute had gone out of hearing. After a few steps, I ceased my pursuit, realizing how futile it must be in the fast-gathering gloom, and so, with a curious feeling of depression, I entered the house. That night, after my sister had gone to bed, I went round to all the windows and doors on the ground floor and saw to it that they were securely fastened. This precaution was scarcely necessary as regards the windows as all those on the lower story are strongly barred, but with the doors, of which there are five, it was wisely thought as not one was locked. Having secured these, I went to my study, yet Somehow, for once, the place jarred upon me. It seemed so huge and echoey. For some time I tried to read, but at last, finding it impossible, I carried my book down to the kitchen where a large fire was burning, and sat there. I dare say I had read for a couple of hours when, suddenly... I heard a sound that made me lower my book and listen intently. It was a noise of something rubbing and fumbling against the back door. Once the door creaked loudly as though force were being applied to it. During those few short moments... I experienced an indescribable feeling of terror, such as I should have believed impossible. My hands shook, a cold sweat broke out on me, and I shivered violently. Gradually, I calmed. The stealthy movements outside had ceased. Then, for an hour, I sat silent and watchful. All at once, the feeling of fear took me again. I felt as I imagine an animal must under the eye of a snake. Yet now I could hear nothing. Still, there was no doubting that some unexplained influence was at work. Gradually, imperceptibly almost, 
something stole on my ear, a sound that resolved itself into a faint murmur. Quickly it developed and grew into a muffled but hideous chorus of bestial shrieks. It appeared to rise from the bowels of the earth. I heard a thud and realized in a dull, half-comprehending way that I had dropped my book. After that, I just sat, and thus the daylight found me, when it crept wanly in through the barred high windows of the great kitchen. With the dawning light, the feeling of stupor and fear left me, and I came more into possession of my senses. Thereupon I picked up my book and crept to the door to listen. Not a sound broke the chilly silence. For some minutes I stood there, then, very gradually and cautiously, I drew back the bolt and, opening the door, peeped out. My caution was unheeded. Nothing was to be seen, save the grey vista of dreary, tangled bushes and trees, extending to the distant plantation. With a shiver, I closed the door and made my way quietly up to bed. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another exciting installment of Bominable Bominations. You can also find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else I can jam this thing.